dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing a masterclass I attended last week in West Hollywood. You all know I am a sucker for Spanish wine, and this was a phenomenal event put on by Spain Food and Wine, Queso, Jamón, and Vino. Oh my. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Did you know you can do it right now while you're listening? New ratings and reviews are how the algorithms decide which podcast they recommend to others. And if you love the podcast, other wine lovers will too. And don't forget to add your email address to the website to keep up on all things exploring the wine glass. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, Somday service, champagne and Cotteron specialist, and a WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Give me the white, white, white. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a treat to be here in LA. I have not, I don't think I've hit down here since the pandemic. Is that pretty scary? Uh, craziness, but it's great to be here. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being on time. Uh, thank you in advance for laughing in the right places, not the wrong places, and enjoying the wines as we do. Uh, we have a multifaceted day today. I will introduce our first seminar momentarily on uh, wines and uh, cheeses and ham and all that other uh, good stuff. Why is this not going to play? There we go. Spanish ham cheeses and the wines that love them. We'll, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping things um, that are there. Alisa is passing around here. Two pieces of paper that are very important. Uh, these programs don't happen um, because you pull around with proverbial cracker jacks before a box of cracker jacks before a doctor game. Uh, so uh, please take a moment or two on your way out to go into the tasting afterwards to fill these out. One is uh, just an evaluation of how this first seminar goes. You can give the speaker a 10 right now because he's amazing. But otherwise, in terms of your learning, all that other good stuff, please take a moment to do that. And then secondarily, with respect to the wines, we have six wines in this first seminar. Uh, think of it kind of like Facebook likes or something like that. Check wines that are interesting to you. Hand that in. Fill that out. Because if you don't fill that out, you might not be eligible uh, for education programs that we do in Spain above and beyond the certified wine education thing. She talked about. So if that's interesting to you, you need to fill that sheet out and hand it to our team on the way out the door. So other than that, we've got six glasses, five of which have wines in them right now. The sixth one is sparkling, so we're going to pour it to order. There's nothing like flat uh, and warm sparkling wine, so we're going to pour that on a few. Everything else is there. Uh, you should feel free to taste the wine from here and there as you feel like it. Don't wait for me to cue you, but do save enough wine in your glass when we get to the actual pairing itself. You can play. Uh, and do that. So uh, I do encourage you to drink the wines ahead of time if you're not rushing through them. I also sound better after you drunk. So uh, that's a good thing to do as well too. And without further ado, let's jump into the uh, seminar today. It is about cheese, it is about jamon, and it is about wines uh, that love them and go with them. So let's talk a little bit about cheese first. Uh, cheese or queso, as they would say in Spain, 
uh, has a very long uh, tradition and uh, goes back a long ways uh, historically. Different animals we'll talk about momentarily. But I bring this up, I mean, you're all probably going like, well, duh, heaven. Of course that happens. But I think many of us, when we think of cheeses in Europe, we think of Italy, we think of France, and we sort of forget that other cheeses are made in those countries, and whether you're in Spain, whether you're in Portugal, greater Iberia in general, there's a lot of delicious cheese made. Uh, cheese produces well over 100 different genres of cheese from different milks uh, mixed in other ways, which we'll talk about there, of which about 30 of them are what they call PDO, or geographical origin delimited cheeses, which is very cool. Uh, each cheese itself is unique and different based on a number of characteristics, obviously the way the cheeses are produced, etc. And all of them uh, create this sort of wonderful mosaic of what the, uh, the culture is all about. So, so I, I encourage you to uh, be above, above and beyond today. I promise that you're going to spend more time with Spanish cheese moving forward. Um, as far as cheese goes, it's sort of like, you know, what's that old adage that Carl Sagan said before you make an apple pie first, you have to create the universe, right? So let's talk about the topography and the microclimates of the country first a little bit, because obviously different climates, different uh, topographies, etc., are going to make it better or more difficult for certain species of animals to give milk to air produce cheese. So Spain is actually a lot more diverse than people think. They have these uh, areas called company climates, of which there are a bunch of them, and uh, 13 across Europe, and 10 of which um, are most climatically diverse in the world. Uh, Spain is amongst the most diverse of all of them, although we don't think about it. We tend to think of it being sort of coastal or interior, but there are a lot of different things. I would sort of suggest to you that there are basically five climates across Spain. There's the Atlantic coastal area, which we know after Galicia, the Espacios, the Verasaca, etc., tend to be cool, humid, rainy, and dare I say more green than they are red, or they are dusty or brown in color. Then there is, of course, the, uh, the Great Meseta, the Central Plateau, which is arid, higher, uh, and very cool, you know, very uh, extremes, cold winters, hot summers, very continental in that regard, and this very much dominates the entire center part of the country, you can see on the map on the, uh, the right-hand side. Then you have sort of the so-called Mediterranean climates, which follow sort of the southern and eastern coastal regions, include Catalonia, Barcelona, the Balearic Islands, Valencia, Malaga, you kind of scoop around there, and uh, milder, they're sunnier, they can get quite warm, but they're very conducive to lots of cool stuff. And then moving way north, you have the mountainous areas around the Pyrenees and all the Sierras uh, around, uh, around Rioja, etc. Uh, and they tend to be generally cool, uh, moving towards warmer as you move further east towards sort of Sierra Rioja, Oriental, Nevada, but getting much cooler as you move towards the uh, inland western areas by where, where Sierra Rioja Alta and things like that are. And then lastly, you have the sort of almost African climate of Andalusia, uh, which is sort of mild in the uh, winter, very hot in the summer, and really creating this sort of tapestry of, of diversity. All of this equates to the fact that when you have different topography, when you have different climate, you're going to get different cattle, different animals that thrive and are best suited for those climates. So as you think about that, this is going to be important in terms of detailing the richness of what happens in the range of cheese. So with respect to that, um, let's talk a little bit about range and variety. So you basically have three genres of animals that exist in this part of the world. You have cows, you have sheep, and you have goats. That seems to be true everywhere. You don't have water buffalo here, but in general, you're going to find the cow's milk cheeses up in the north. 
Um, the resident has a lot to do with the uh, uh, proximity to, uh, to the UK, towards English areas where a lot of cow came from originally. We don't know, but today, most of the Olympic Cantabri comes from Galicia all the way across to the Basque Country in Biscay and then across the northern Cantabric mountain ranges and in the Pyrenees are where you find the cow. So I'm going to illustrate this graphically in a minute or two so it will make more sense. Some people are more familiar with Next are sheep milk cheeses. Sheep are sort of the big dog, right? Sheep cheeses are going to be found uh, pretty much inland. And the inland, of course, is very large. You're going to find them. Again, North Cantabria, we be south down from Rioja in, and the Basque Country into the flatlands of Castilla León, into La Mancha, into the Seta, Aragon, and yes, Benadura. So sheep are a big deal in this part of the world. And then, of course, you have goats. And goat's milk cheeses are found primarily in the coastal areas, both Catalonia and Lucia on both sides, primarily on the western side, and on the Canary Islands, uh, where the Halley got there originally. That's a whole study in uh, the diaspora of goats. You can look into that in your, your free time. Um, and then, of course, most importantly, because animals move, you are going to have goats where you have cows, and sheep where you have goats, etc. Occasionally, you're going to find mixed milk cheeses. And those are some of the most interesting and delicious, and they can be found primarily driven by the milk of a particular area and the primary animal, but of course, uh, from other things as well, too. So if that sounded like kind of Evan, that was really cool, but I'm having a real hard time visualizing it. Well, this slide is for you. So again, as you can see before, we have our cows, and our cows are up there in the northern area we talked about before. Uh, and they go all the way down to the water, across Galicia, all the way down and moving inland towards the Pyrenees, etc. Sort of hugging that area too. But quite interesting as we talk about in a minute, uh, in the Salera uh, Islands over by Menorca and all that, you have cows, you have cows too. How did they get there? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Then as I said before, we've got our sheep, and the sheep sort of huddle up in the middle around there and really form from a volume in terms of terroirs and a sheer kilometrage, acreage, hectareage. They drive everything. And as I said before, you've got your goats that sort of run the coastal areas down there. And then of course you find them on some of the islands as well. So those people who are more into infographics and other economy, hopefully this makes sense and do that. I love those little pictures of those animals. It feels like I should be up like, I don't know, how many where the world is turn in San Diego or where in the world is Carmen Manchego? Ah, okay, there we go. So just some facts about wine now before we do that. We can talk about cheese and talk about wine. Obviously, the history of wine goes back a long time in Spain, too. It dates back some 3,000 years. And people will tell you that even long before trade, when they had those first outposts in places like Cadiz and Adaf, you know, obviously getting access to the water, that there were vines that went back a long time. If you remember long before Spain uh, and Portugal, you had this sort of general region called Iberia. And Iberia is known, amongst other things, as being one of the legendary homes for Vita Silvestris which are grape varieties which are not per se vinifera, and they're closely related vinifera, but have a lot of grapes that you find here that you don't find in other places. So history shows us that while, uh, I guess, uh, so people proved that you know, it's about thousands of years now, faster than we, uh, further than we thought they did, but certainly in Spain, it's uh, some 3,000 years plus. What's interesting about Spain as well is not only they have this great history, they've got a lot of history, a lot of grapes, and a lot of wines. So they are the largest vineyard area in the world as a single country. Let me repeat that. Largest vineyard area in the world as a single country with 13% of all of the grapes used for producing wine on earth 
being in Spain. That means 2,375,000 acres of grapes, which makes them number one in grape growing, yet they are number third in production. What does that suggest? It suggests that you've got lots of little grapes here and there, maybe go up to Coa, maybe you don't make them, maybe I'm really efficient, maybe I'm inefficient, etc. But it really has been this dynamic over time because the two largest producers in the world sort of go back and forth between France and Italy all the time, although Spain always has had more planted land than they have. So go figure, as they say. And then, uh, as they say on the infomercials late at night, but wait, there's more, okay? Spain is also home to a lot of different grape varieties. So there are literally hundreds of grape varieties uh, around this area. Uh, as you hear from the Portuguese all the time, they'll tell you over 250. Most of these grapes are sort of shared grapes, as we'll talk about before uh, a little bit later. But what's sort of sad around this, unless you tend to be a bit of an archivist, uh, a wine sleuth, a grape sleuth, is only about 20 grapes. Realistically, only probably about four to six grapes represent the lion's share of what's actually produced today. There are about 130 different designations of, of, of grape growing areas in Spain, of which 70 of them are DOs, and two of them, as we know, are DOCAs, Calificadas, as opposed to Disco Origin, and those who include Rioja, and Priorano, but many of us would argue that Jerez should be in there as well, too. I hope they'll be number three soon. So, what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? It means that in terms of wine and in terms of cheese, you're going to find something in this country for absolutely everybody. Different animals, different cheeses, reds, white, bubblies, fortified, sweet, and dry, you can find it all in España. So let me give you a little bit of a sense of what our format is going to be all about. So as I said before, you should feel free to try your wine. Now you're getting your last wine poured right now, it's sparkling, so we waited a little bit. Um, these are for spitting. It's a little Sorry. bit early. There's a lot of wine out there. There's a lot of wine in here. You're one of those people who went out of all my clothes right now. Well, go for it. All of all those wines. And they try to be a little bit more moderate. Not to keep it more. Otherwise, you know, for egg parties, smoothie, a favorite green drink, if you want to pour out of the blender, whatever you want to do, I need to use mine for spitting. You also have your cheeses in front of you. Um, and these are clockwise. So go in from 12 to 6. Uh, and these are going to follow the order that we're tasting them. You have Majon, you have the Mesillo Albino, you have the Manchego, the Ipilla Fatal, and then you have the two uh, hams, the Serrano, uh, probably about 7 or 8 o'clock, about 10 to 12 o'clock. You have your Ibenico. So as long as you've got four cheeses to your right hand side, going top to bottom, and two hams on your left hand side, you will never be out of order today if you don't want to do that. You should feel free uh, to try out things as we're doing it. I'm going to suggest some combinations along the way that you're going to want to try one which I would call more traditional. And when I was going to call a little bit edgier if you wanted to play, I will either give you an edgy choice or a classic choice depending on the wine cheese what kind of the wing was of the moment that I was writing that. You will do that for the four cheeses. We will rinse and repeat and do it for the ham as well. So let us start with our first cheese at 12 o'clock. And that is a fabulous cheese that we refer to as Mahon or Mahon. And this is a slightly salty, sharp, semi-firm, although it can be firmer, uh, no cow's milk cheese that comes from Menorca. Remember we told you that those were across the north, except for those islands, the Bayerkan the Islands. 
The Butterington Island is formed from an archipelago out into the Mediterranean. Remember that on the map that we saw earlier. And Norkin is one of those four islands there. So it's odd that this particular sheep is a cow sheep. And as you can see there, originally it was made with sheep's milk. We've got sheep everywhere. But in the 18th century, there was a British invasion that happened, and they brought with them the specific type of Prescian cattle over there. And over time, the recipe was adapted over for cow's milk as opposed to sheep milk, although everything else followed uh, soon afterwards. Um, these cheeses are served two ways. They're either young, uh, on the two to four month area, or they're in the older area, more curado cheeses. All of them are curado or cured cheeses, but some cured longer than others closer to about a year. Over time, as the cheeses are aging, they sort of rub them down with oil, so it creates that sort of stone-colored brine to the exterior, which although it is edible, it's not my favorite brine in the world. Some of these brines are more edible than others. And what's interesting over time is that as they get um, older, they get more herbal, they get saltier, they get a little bit more complex, they get tangier as they get older, so you can oftentimes tell the age of your mahon uh, simply by the level of tang and sharpness it has. Um, they're quite interesting. They can be a little bit flaky and crunchy. We'll talk about uh, tyrosine compounds and amino acids when we get Manchego later. So hold that thought. But sometimes you'll notice that you get these sort of like crunchy, almost kernel-y little bits in the middle, and that's very typical. Um, when the wheels are aged for a lot longer, they literally look like and have the same uh, similar texture to Parmesan, although they have a much more sort of caramelly, toffee-like character, and they can be grated, uh, which is quite interesting to think about that, but it serves it that well too. As far as what wine we're going to do that, the traditional classic option that you have is Benedis, uh, is a coffee, which is what you've got in front of you. You should enjoy, I'm going to enjoy, as we're going through that. And that's a very traditional one. Part of that is that sort of textural thing, particularly with the eggs not on, you get that little bit of crunch, shows nicely against the kava, etc. But I also thought you wanted to have fun, the kicks and giggles, as they say, go with something completely opposite. So actually, I tried this one before with, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a uh, slightly sweet fortified wine, something from like Malaga, is actually quite interesting too. And again, with those older ones, you've got that sort of oxidized toffee, butterscotch character. It works out well. So what do we have in front of us? We have a, uh, a cava, uh, and it's a vintage dated cava as well too. So it's not uh, made in a sort of solera or blended system. Comes from the great house of It's organic. This is a particular estate that has a history. It was established in 1882. And um, basically, it was a family. Um, you can probably tell. It sounds kind of French, maybe a little bit too. But needless to say, uh, there was a sort of back and forth. There was this emulation of not only wanting to produce high quality sparkling wine, but do so in a traditional method. So they were very early on Kava producers and decided to literally build a house and an estate dedicated to Kava and dedicated in a traditional way. So what's traditional about this is it's all, you're, you're increasingly probably seeing cabas in your market and, and things like that have more Chardonnay in there, Pinot Noir. Those grapes are now actually legal to be blended. But the traditions, of course, were Bacabe or Charello, Sarayana, as the sort of traditional grapes. And you kind of hold on to those traditions, which I think is really cool. Secondarily, all of these grapes are actually certified organic which uh, doesn't mean it tastes better, if you feel a bit better. Uh, at the end of the day, drinking something and inviting something that's organic. And the wine spends 18 months sirloin, or on its leaves, so it picks up a little bit more autolysis, a little bit of analytic character, a little bit of a biscuit thing, um, a slightly oxidized character, which I think works nicely against the mollins. So uh, 
I hope you're enjoying that. Uh, it's 12% APV for the typical of what you find in Kava. What you're not going to find in Kava anymore, for those of you who are paying attention, is that the folks, all of our friends, two things are happening in Kava. Number one, you've got a group of people in Kava who say, I don't like the way they make Kava anymore. I want to do my own thing. So if you've seen this term called Corpy Knots on the label, you've got this small sort of consortium of producers who have decided to exit. Um, they did decide to be the Vino de la Tierra, or they, they wanted to be their own thing. So they branded themselves with Corpy Knots, and there's a handful of people there, and they are in the traditional area where our friends in Rioja have decided, as of a couple of years ago, to go their own way. Um, and they not only are making their own wines, but they're now in Rioja as the So that's something to look forward to as well. Those wines are just starting to hit the market. They all have higher minimums than COVID is. So higher turn on, on court, higher turn on is higher aging for reservas, et cetera. So that's something we're checking out to over time. They all have this Monte in addition to COVID. This wine sells for a delicious $24 a bottle, given the price of champagne these days. I can tell you I'm drinking a lot more COVID at home, and I'm happily doing it because the COVID quality in these days is better than it has ever been before. So there you go. All right. Let's move on next to our second cheese. So that's moving down. Uh, that's, so that's at about 2 o'clock. And this is a cheese called Murcia Albino. And this is a very delicate cheese. It's a goat's cheese that comes from the region of Murcia. Um, probably a lot of people don't see it labeled as Murcia Albino because most of the most readily available ones you can buy in either cheese stores or grocery stores, etc., tend to go by branded names. The one that's probably the most ubiquitous is one literally called Drunken Goat. Um, and then you see a whiny goat out there, etc. But they're all basically the same cheese. It's sort of moderate intensity, unless you decide to age it more. Uh, great stories here. Nobody has the, the most authentic original story. Anecdotes and the cool romantic story is that a veal of cheese sort of fell off the table, fell into a barrel of wine. And a couple days later, somebody found the wheel of cheese, and wasn't that cool? And oh, oh my God, we started to get it in the 1980s. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but what we do know is what is consistent across the board is that you can take relatively fresher cheese that's somewhere between 48 and 72 hours, and then they do, for lack of better words, age it or immerse it or cure it, if you will, in red wine. Now, the traditional effort for doing this uh, in the area of Murcia, of course, was uh, what they call the tope pasta, or double, a double uh, past wine. So what they would do is they would take fermenting red wine, it's one of these part of the world, all the grapes were red, and then they would bleed off, or semi off a lot of the fermenting must there, and then just adding a lot of crushed red grapes. So you can imagine you have this inky stuff, and you leave your wheel of cheese in it for a period of time, and then you pull it out, and then you continue to let it dry out as pure for 90 days. Now, some of, this is a big wheel to be caught, by the way. So some of you probably do have a little bit, I don't have a little bit, but some of you probably have a little bit of red on your outside. And that is, of course, the red uh, crust. It is completely edible, actually tastes quite good. So if you have any on there, don't feel like you need to kind of scrape it off with your fingernail or whatever. Just eat it because it's really, really tasty stuff. Uh, literally, just like the change to go with wine. Um, and it's uh, interesting because the difference between the color of the outside and the color of the inside are dramatically polarized. So the outside is a sort of deep, almost violetish color, and the inside, of course, is sort of very almost alabaster-colored uh, paste in the middle. It's very smooth, it's very delicately gravy, um, gentle, kind of pliable, and a lot of fun. And what do you want to serve with it today? Well, you could go in two different directions. You could do sort of, obviously, a local wine, 
you know, eat, eat drink locally, and have sort of a, a red wine from Mia, Tana, Yankla, etc. It's a lot of those wines, bright, juicy, red, delicious, etc. Or you could go ahead and do a wine. Um, and Rolanda is usually a good call. And usually you would do that nickel. However, because I just decided if you're going to go edgy, let's go edgy. You're actually having a Sauvignon Blanc. Um, now, what's really cool about this, which is kind of different, is most people when they hear of Rolanda, of course, they associate their Neko. Their Neko is this beautiful grape of this area, where it was originally made into a sherry style wine. Traditional Rolanda was sherry. Over time, they decided to move it towards a white wine. Emil Pinot came down to, to this area, to Rueda, in the Castilla, uh, and, and then said, you know, well, this reminds me a lot of like sort of Sauvignon, Sauvignon, white Bordeaux, you should make it that way, you should treat it that way. And they went, okay, you do that. And they said, but they said, yes. Right, and I'm telling you, you're not going to be Sauvignon Blanc, and I'm getting that. Just, this is my story, it's going to move into that. So, come for a day, they did that. But then the guys in Verdeo, like, sure, this is not the same. It's dry, it's dry. They said, well, what if a Verdeo doesn't do so well, what if you don't like it? And they said, well, I'm reminded of Bordeaux. Then you should plant some Sauvignon Blanc there, too. You could either do Sauvignon Blanc, you could do the Verdeo, you could blend them, like Sauvignon or Sauvignon, or whatever. So a lot of people said, okay, we're going to do that. So a lot of the Verdeo, that you see today is actually blended with a little bit of sodium blanc in it in field blends and some actually parcel up. And some people have taken it a step further and are actually doing pure sodium blanc, which is what you're getting here. Now, it actually makes sense because, again, what goes together goes together, and they're very close sodium blanc as well. We thought for, uh, again, kicks and giggles, we'd go completely radical. So, this is a sodium blanc. And now, a word from our sponsor. Exploring the Wine Glass is brought to you by Dracaena Wines. Dracaena Wines is an artisan winery located in Paso Robles, California. They have been producing wine since 2013. Their first vintage began with one wine, their classic Cabernet Franc, which received a 91 in wine enthusiast. Since then, they have increased production as well as expanded their portfolio, have received many accolades, including multiple double gold medals and consistent 90-plus ratings. Visit their website, www.dracinawines.com, or use the link in the show notes to schedule a private tasting and to see their entire portfolio. Purchase your award-winning wine and let Dracina Wines help turn your moments into great memories. However, it is made by the Marques de Biscal, who are arguably the people who put Verdejo on the map and the people who actually hired Pedro to come down. So it's a wonderful story that confluences together. So they began the production of the first dry white wine from Verde, uh, from Nueva, in the 70s. And in 74, two years later, at the request of Mr. Pedro, they started planning Sauvignon Blanc. Two and do some wines as Verdejo, some as blends, and some as Sauvignon Blanc. So you can get the best of everything. And in 1980, a few years later, they actually led the charge to get the DO for Rueda as well. So you get a wonderful complex here. The grapes here are a couple of decades old, so you have older wine, Sauvignon Blanc here too, and it could be a lot of fun. So um, an amazing value, just 50 bucks, roughly $50 above, 100% Sauvignon Blanc. If you really wanted to try their Rodeo, uh, you could do that too, equally taste, equally good. But I just wanted to have it fun. Guys just want to have fun, right? And you're sick of this. 
Our third cheese that you have in front of you is a manchego. And manchego is, of course, a DOP cheese that can be, oh, this is one of the most restricted cheeses that's out there. So it can only be made from the milk of the appropriately named manchega sheep that graze in the area of La Mancha. It has four sort of substances that you can see listed there, including Ciudad Real, Cuenca, Torino, and Albaceche. Um, and it's a nice medium intensity cheese. Now, once again, sort of like our friend Malwan that we started with at the beginning today, you can have them on the younger side and you can have them on the age side. The age side can get really aged, like you can age them a couple of years. It's very rare that you'll see a Malwan above a year age, but Manchego has been known for being aged for two years, and once again, particularly good for grading. If you ever wanted to go radical and put something different in your uh, your risotto or, or, or whatever, try Manchego as opposed to Parm or Pecorino or something like that. It has a whole different nuance, a little bit of exotic stuff there, um, Spanish and Italian little friends, so I, I kind of like doing that. So. Um, it has a firm uh, texture, and that over time gets a little crunchy, it gets a little flaky and all of that, and that's part of it. It's, when it's younger, it's more buttery. As it gets older, it's a little crunchier. The best cheese period, so it has to be from these particular sheep, and it has to be uh, at this area, and it can only be it's best served at a particular time of year. So you can imagine that milk, like grapes, like oysters, like vegetables, have terroir. We call it leche war. Right? <laughs> Milk, leche, terroir, war, leche war. We have terroir for grapes, leche war for milk, terroir for vegetables. What do you have for the water for things like it coming out of the ocean? Oysters taste different in different places. You know what we call that? Marowar. Marowar. And people these days are growing grapes at different altitudes and with different wings and things like that. You know what we call that? Airwar. Airwar, marwar, terroir, and for our purposes today, lechewar. So the lechewar that we're talking about, the concept of the is that everybody who's of this area, all the beef producer, producers um, and afineros, um, I don't even know what the word for for is in Spanish, perhaps Captain will tell me a little bit later. But the people there will tell you that the cheese is its best between August and December, because that milk, the milk is the richest. So again, these are animals that craze. Your milk, in terms of fat content, flavor, etc., the leche water, if you will, is driven on what's available for them to eat, how much fat they need to put on to keep themselves warm at the time of year, etc. So that's when you stop. And lastly, as these cheeses age, they get sharper and the texture gets firmer and flakier and crunchier. As I alluded to before when we were talking about the bottom, over time during the course of production, these um, you get these crystals that form. You've probably seen them. They form on the inside of the cheese, they're a little bit white. You see them in like howda, you know, see them in gouda, you see them in hard cheese blood, and they form on the outside of the cheese as well, too. These are primarily, there's a couple of kinds, but the primary ones that you have are called tyrosines. And tyrosines happen because the natural compounds in the proteins break down over time during the course of the cheese production process. And that as they clump together, think about how in grapes you have pigment and tannin falls out as sediment. In cheeses, you have proteins and things, amino acids fall out as crystals, kind of like 
we talked about tartar crystals, right? In wine, you have tyrosine crystals and cheese, but they have nowhere to go. So they just sort of form and add that thing. And they do have this sort of third-party flavor. It tends to be kind of toffee-ish, oxidized, butterscotchy, etc. Um, and they add an interesting texture and flavor, and they harden them, they get deeper, the flavors deeper over time. As you can see, particularly as they get older, you can imagine that there's interesting plays you can have with business, not by accident, but you oftentimes see Mancheco served with honey, served with almonds, marmacona almonds, marmalade, etc. Not like I'm doing to you today. I'm a cheese purist. I eat my cheese as cheese. I don't even like bread with my cheese. I just eat cheese. Um, but some people will give you all these accoutrements alongside. Those would be the most traditional that you see. And then the wine that we're going to have, uh, traditionally, option would be uh, an aged Rioja. And then your second energy option, again, kind of thinking about what we talked about before, um, some of these medium dry sweet cherries. Don't overlook sugar in playing with cheese. Um, sugar and cheeses, you know, particularly if you're moving over the course of the meal, you have your cheeses towards the end of the meal, and you're moving towards dessert anyway. If you put your cheeses as a, as a course between, don't be bashful about going to a sweet wine to, to literally thread over the narrative of your meal into your dessert. I'll oftentimes bring out sherries afterwards. But I wanted to do a Rioja, and I thought we would bring this uber cool wine uh, to you to show here. So this one here, wine number three, um, yes, wine number three, correct? Yes. Is a, um, I am on here. Is the Bodega Urbina Selección 2000. So your 2000 that you're seeing here is because this wine is from vintage to 2000. So people know that 2000 was an interesting year. It was known for number one, the year that we all thought our computers were going to die, life was going to be Armageddon, and everything was going to be over. Um, that didn't happen. What happened in terms of the great gods is they decided that I deem, because you survived the apocalypse, that everywhere in the world is going to have a good vintage in 2000. I want you to think about the part of the world that didn't have a good vintage in 2000. Everywhere was good. Go figure, huh? Um, and this is the wine that goes back to 2000. It's from Rioja. It's a 90% Tepadillo, 5% Masuelo, and 5% uh, Graciano. Masuelo, as we know, is another way we're saying Cariño, Cariñena. And Graciano is the same grape as Ceres, if you go over to France. Um, what was peculiar about this wine, if you're thinking to yourself, G7 for a 2000 wine was awfully young. What the hell is going on here? Are you lying to us? And the answer would be no. So these people who make this wine, the people at Urbina, were located uh, specifically in Rioja Alta, in Cuscurita, Rio Toron, will tell you that they picked this grape, 183 acres, they select the best fruit in the best years. This wine is not made every year. And then they age it. They age it 15 months. They don't age it 18 months. So it's technically, if you look at the back label by pulling the bottle layer, it is only a Crianza wine. But then after 15 months, it's a combination of age and um, new American French oak. They take it out of oak, he says for dramatic pause, and they put it back in stainless steel. And there is sap forever and ever and ever. And they've made two lots of this wine, lot zero and lot one. Lot zero was bottled in 2018. Lot two, which is lot one, which is what you have to make, was bottled in June of 2022. So this wine has literally been aging in a stainless steel tank, which is relatively neutral as we know, but nevertheless it's been there and it's been held for like 18 years. So this is a current release. 
How cool to have an old wine at a 30, for $35 with freshness that's an interest to it, and it's just kind of awfully cool. So I just thought that would be fun to show you as well. Please, I hope you're enjoying that wine and enjoying that wine with your, uh, your thing. And as we move on to our final cheese here today, we have the hardest one. This is the one that you're going to have the hardest time pronouncing, which is why we put pronunciation guys up there. This is E, E, A, Sa, Ba, This is a semi-firm, firm, and slightly bitter sheep's milk cheese. It comes from the Basque country, and it is definitively a little bit smoky, and it is very strong. It is sheepy. It is a little bit on the gamey <laughs> side. If you do not like lamb, and you do not like sheep's milk cheeses in general, give it to your neighbor. Give it to me. I love this cheese. It just comes from a specific uh, breed of sheep, the Lacha sheep, and they literally live along the hillsides of Basque country, and they make a very rich, thick milk. Um, in fact, they are so prodigious in their milk production that the DO limits them to just one gallon, or one liter rather, per day. Which is why you see the pictures of them and they all look like they're about to explode. I've never seen these four sheep. I feel so bad for them, but I guess they get used to it over time. I don't know. I mean, sheep breeds give an exceptionally fatty, high, um, uh, high lactate uh, content, buttery mouthfeel, gamey character coming from the sheep milk, and again, very limited, very intense because obviously you're only putting out so much milk, it's very intense milk. So it's then lightly pressed and then gently smoked. So they always have a slightly smoky character, and that is um, true to the fact that they dry, that they dry them uh, over by the fireplace. That was a tradition. So they always have a little bit of a smoky flavor, whether they're drying them by the fireplace today or just smoking them, I don't know. But they're revered for this little bit of kind of slightly juicy texture, subtle sharpness, and a little bit of that. The rind is dark, it's hard, as you can see in the picture there. And um, although it's not going to make you sick, I would say you a lot of it, because it's just not that fun. And then the last wine we have here today is uh, Gamacha, and an old wine Gamacha. This is wine number four. You could get Go for sherry. As you can see, there's a theme for fortified wines and cheeses being excellent combos here. But here, I would probably go for uh, a, a, a macchiato or a Richard Lyra sort of style movie. Go that route. This is again a good edge here. That's sort of a bigger, rich, old wine garnacha is very uh, traditional. This comes from Bodegas uh, Alto Montayo, and this is a garnacha. What I love about this house, and I do love this house, is that they were founded in 2002 situated in the highest uh, part of Borja, in Campo de Borja, in Aragon, where, of course, Granacha reigns supreme and king. And they opened this winery up that all they wanted to do was make Granacha. Old vine and different parcels of Granacha, and they literally massive selection and figured out areas where they could get the greatest diversity of Granacha uh, wood uh, to make wine. So this, these grapes that go into this wine are between 40 and 70 years old, limited yield. It's been aged in Nuo for 20 months, and I do think um, the oak actually adds to the, uh, the, the, the pairing here. It's quite nice. It's 100% Garnacha. Obviously, Garnacha in this part of the world is uh, ample. One is about almost 16% alcohol. Uh, it is their top of the line wine by far. Uh, it's sold for uh, $45 and um, just a delightful house. They make a couple of them in their Mokaios by the table. 
go and hang out with the guys from Ontario, the gals from Ontario, because they're making some really, really nice stuff. So with that, we exit the world of cheese, and we're going to enter the world of hamon. Hamon, hamon. Um, and hamon, of course, in Spain are synonymous. I mean, you can't have uh, culture, uh, tapas, uh, food, going to somebody's house, hanging out at a winery, etc., without having hamon at some point in time. It is a part of the DNA of Spanish culture and cuisine that you can find anywhere. That doesn't matter if you're in Bilbao, Barcelona, Madrid, Sabina, Valencia, anywhere you're going to find Calon. And it dates back forever. So it dates back to some centuries and centuries of pre-Roman times, where pigs, of course, when the Romans settled in places, even before then, in this case, though, but generally the Romans would settle, they would bring grapes. They would bring olives, they would bring cattle, and they would decide we're plant we're setting up shop here. They already had uh, pigs there, etc., but they sort of incorporated more. What's interesting about Hamon, which they were sort of very much uh, settling in your different from Puerto etc., is that they're dry, they're cured slightly, just with salt, never smoked at all. Some hands we know in this country, etc., is smoked. Um, and uh, it's just part of the culture. So we also know that it's got a it's gone up and down, obviously, when the Moors conquered the peninsula, uh, there was no ham for a period of time, or if it was ham, it was bootleg. Like that, bootleg ham. Do I get some love for that? Never mind. Um, all right, here you go. But we're going to put vanish into sausages and some people in there. Of course, yeah, it's deep. Yeah, yeah, it's deep. But then after the Christians retained control, of course, became popular again, and Hamon came back. So there are two genres of Hamon as we know in this part of the world. And what is the difference? Well, that's the difference. Hamon Serrano, of course, is the big, uh, most popular uh, style, the most ubiquitous style. Serrano meaning coming, obviously, from the mountains or the hills, but not only the hills, and that, etc. Made from different types of pig, most notably the Drac, a larger whites, like Lasse. There are some 2,000 producers of Hamon Serrano there today. However, in 1990, kind of like our friends of Korkinat in Kava, a group of them said, <laughs> you guys are not making a product that we respect. So 18 of them found a consortio de jamón serrano especial. And they make their own things, which was then further given credence by the EU delimiting what jamón serrano was. And now if you buy serrano ham, if you buy a leg, and you see this S on it, the S means it comes from the consortio. So I'm not going to tell you it's better. There's a lot of Serrano Ham out there, but there is a difference, in my humble opinion, as you're going out there, you pay a little bit more for it. It's not as much as Ibenico, but it's worth doing. Up here, I'll mainly cereals. Some do a little bit of egg ones, which obviously we'll talk about with Ibenico in a moment. But nevertheless, uh, it's, it's, it's not ages long, 7 to 16 months, and it's 90%, as the factory says there, of the production in this country. By the way, when they put the, the PDO on it, what the people at The Economist would tell you across the world, not just Spain, is anytime you put a delimitation, like a PDO, an AOP, or whatever on it, it expands the value of the product by 40%. So um, when in doubt, get certified, <laughs> right? Charge more, et cetera. Which leads us to Amorni Benico. Amorni Benico, as the name suggests, obviously comes from the Iberian pig. That Iberian pig sort of shares that central plain uh, between uh, the eastern uh, Alentejo and Spain, 
the area is called La Deesa, and it is partially in Spain, partially in Portugal. The pigs go back and forth. We kind of eat acorns along the way, etc. And um, they are known it is the area there. It is always got, as you can see from the hand in front of you, a much darker, denser color that is both in terms of the feed, but also the curing process, which you can see starts at 18 months and can go up to literally 48 months. Four-year age, very important. Um, they, it is, the, uh, it is the, the, the best of ports, the most expensive of ports as well, too, and just absolutely delightful stuff. Um, what's interesting about it, your one fast way to be sure, is that Columbus carried some over on the Santa Maria when he sent to the New World. Unfortunately, we're not making, I mean, if we could just figure out how to make Iberico pork here in the United States with that same breed that can go back to Columbus over time, maybe we could drop the prices. I don't know, but they haven't done it. Maybe some people lost the paperwork. Maybe Columbus didn't really do it, but that's what the story says. So on that note, uh, let's talk about the wine. So your first wine, it goes with your Jamon Serrano. Uh, the first one is about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. Um, your classic option, of course, would be sherry, and would be dry sherry. Your edgier option, you notice this edgy thing that I've been on today, is actually a smoother, lower acid white texture and roundness. You're sort of filling the gaps that you've got here. And I'm going for a Godeo. So you have this wine from Alvarados, Alvarados, rather hot, with the Godeo 2020. It comes from the Ribera Sacra, a part of Galicia. It is 100% Godeo. And this came as uh, in the mid-2010 decade, to 2015, Paul he was doing was tracing around the world looking for new projects, like the project on Venia, project in Calor, and now this project he has up in Galicia. And he's hanging out with Antonio Lopez Fernandez, uh, who owns a lot of land today, which he rebought. His father actually is one of the first people doing this. His father's land got uh, basically taken away. Um, and then his son, literally over time, sort of quilted it back together. So this is a lot of the original homestead of the uh, Alvarenos uh, Lopez family in Alvarenos. Uh, so that's where the area is. And Paul Hobbs found they got hung out together, they drank a lot of wine together, and he said, we should do a project together. So literally a few years later, on these particular higher uh, parcels along the River Seal, um, not too far away from uh, Valiores in Benasacra, they created this wine. So I always thought Lodeo was great, because when you're trying to leave people on the Chardonnay, and give people some rounder, creamier, textured wines, a little bit of bacchanal, etc. Some of them not necessarily uh, always. Um, Lodeo, rather, is a great way to do that with. This, by the way, is the same grape that you were in Portugal that they would call Goveo, like Goveo, Godello, Freixadura, Fajadura, Alvarinho, Alvarinho. Once again, the grapes share a lot of the same patrimony going back a long time. Richer wine, pushing the alcohol in, other Paul Hobbs, as well as the style. Uh, this wine sells for $36, but it's a pretty spectacular uh, bottle of wine. So, anyway, that's what that is. And then our last, cheap, our last thing we're going to finish with, of course, is uh, Iberico. So, enjoy your Iberico. Um, I love it. I could just eat this all day. Uh, and the traditional option with this would be a rich red wine, a little bit of age, definitively oats to pick up on the sort of nuttiness from the acorns and all that stuff there. An edgy option, which I would encourage people to try, probably at home, we're not going to be able to do it here today, but try a, a, an autolytic aged sparkling wine, champagne, etc. And you're going to find it the sort of nutty, nutty thing. 
place well. I'm tired of giving you sherry, go in a different direction. Maybe talk to your people from five spots, and they've got some of those out there today. Grab your phone, a little bit better on that. Go like this. When I picked for you today was a wine from Bella Lozano, and this is from Bonega Bella. Bella. This is the wine from Arano, and Adadi Arano is made from 20 plus year old grapes from older vineyards. They're their 23 acre parcel across different individual parcels. Sitting at roughly 3,200 feet of, of uh, altitude, so you've got a longer growing season going on there. And the Arano label is actually, if you look at it, it's hard to tell. But if you look at, oh, this is owned by the same people who make Kune, by the way, too. So if you look at the old Kune labels, this is a 1910 label that they essentially ripped off of to do that. The three stars that are on the label represent the children of the founder of Kune, Eusebio Real de Asua who was married to Sofia Arano, and Arano is named, of course, for her, both the wine and the bodega. Uh, it's 100% Tinta uh, del País, Tempranillo. Again, Tempranillo changes names that you move around from Tinta del País, Tinta del Toro, Tinta del When you come to our Many Faces with Tempranillo seminar a little bit later, you'll learn more about that from my buddy Chris, who's going to talk to you there. They do a really good job at this one. Nothing less than what you'd expect from great pedigree from our friends in Arano and Renee. So on that lovely note, I have time for maybe one or two questions before I send you off to the room. And we do have one microphone here. So we're going to go with the mic and do that and take the question or two. So there you go. Okay, thank you. Um, you mentioned um, leadership and leadership and the second cheese that we tasted as a substitute for Parmesan with risotto, what are some uh, uses you recommend for the other cheese? Oh, well, good, good, thank you. Good question. Um, other cheese, I mean, number one, we're presenting all good for, for, for cheese. The, the ones that get older, I just sort of remind people to, uh, you know, to use them for grading. That's not limited to just to from my point here. So some of the age plus age bacheco, age holland are gonna do that for you. The goat cheese, you know, you could use it in salads uh, as, as a nice thing way to go. Um, for those of you who like to do it, the shape isn't right for it, but if you're a fan of like baked goat cheeses and stuff like that, particularly if you score the top and let the red color sort of blend into it, you can get kind of interesting pink color, that's kind of nice to do. And if you have all, um, and I guess you could make, you could try like, you know, you could put a little fanuta or something like that out of it if you wanted to do that. I haven't seen a lot of those there uh, in Spain, but what the hell, everything's food food these days. And then just by itself. But cheese in general is just underappreciated. I mean, I think stuff, I, I don't have time to do it, but I've got like a couple of sheets of, you know, cheese pointers there. Just remember that cheeses are different, and if you're going to put together a selection of Spanish cheeses or any cheeses at table, Think about your animals, think about your ages, and think about your, th your things like that. We have a tendency to just throw a bunch of cheese on the table and just throw it there. And not all cheeses go with every wine. The best restaurants actually think about the cheeses based on either A, what's still on your table, or B, what wine you ordered, and they curate a selection of cheeses for that genre of wine. So I would recommend doing cheeses that. So if goat's your theme, if cow's your theme, uh, if she your team or fix with your team, and then pick things around that rather than just this is all I have in my refrigerator. I'm just going to mix up textures and bills. Because more often than that, you end up opening way too many bottles 
And that, I guess that could be fun too. I don't know. Time for one more question. Any other questions? Have you did such an amazing job? Yeah. Regarding matching cheeses and wine, um, do you think it's heretical to match um, Spanish wine with French cheese? Excellent. Um, that's, that's a great question. Do you need to always play in what goes together, grows together team? I would tell you absolutely unequivocally not. Uh, what you need to do is think about the personality. Cheeses, you know, it's kind of like love, right? You know, wine doesn't care where the food's from. Food doesn't care where the wine's from. If you're in love, you're in love. If you're made to go together, wine and cheese-wise or wine and food-wise, it works. Do you have to have the Stecca alla Fiorentina with Chianti or with Rosalinda? No! You can find a wine that shares commonality, bright acids, balanced tannins, interesting flavors, etc. I would simply say if you're not going to uh, do the local wine and you want to play off the local wine, Think about what the personality of the local wine is and just go replicate it elsewhere, whether it's by virtue of the building blocks, tannins, acid, oats, um, uh, alcohol levels, etc., or whether it's by uh, something else. Or, again, that should be stuff too, but no, absolutely. Love it. Love that the world of wine and cheese is blind. Most definitely. George, the last question. I so much agree with you what you're saying all the time. Uh, however, I always like the tradition. Local wines are mama cooking up, papa working outside and blending the flavors together in harmony for hundreds and hundreds of years. That is without addition, you can try the same kind of harmony, not from local, but somewhere else. But I love to see the local things. When I'm in Italy, I love what they did in the village, not in the big city. Anyone still has a Outskirts of the second cheese because that's my, <laughs> that's my sexual joy. <laughs> that's an interesting note to leave on. So we're going to close out the talk here on the second seminar. We're going to set up for our next seminar afterwards. So what I would tell you is this: a couple of things, resources. Uh, that you are not having this tremendous amount of availability of Spanish cheese where you are. The beauty of the internet is that cheese, unlike alcoholic beverages, can cross state lines relatively easily. So whether you go to the La Tienda, whether you go to Spanish Table, whether you go to Forever Cheese, Murray Cheese, wherever your best local cheese source is, you can order cheeses online. And then, of course, Spanish wine resources locally where they love Spanish wine, etc., and mix and match there. So on that note, I would tell you uh, get a shake, enjoy the rest. Um, if you don't mind, two things before you leave. Number one, because Catherine and I will beat you on the way out the door. Please fill out your paper. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Butt. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevins. Until next week, slancha.
Give me the red, red wine Give me the white, white wine Give me the sweet, sweet wine Give me the wine, give me the wine No, no, no Oh, no, no, no Never let you go, oh, oh No, no, no Never let you go, Right now.